postcard from Dulcie to her nephew Michael, undated. From Auntie Dulcie, who is angry with you for not writing. To Michael, Skreif. Hi there. You're listening to episode four of a podcast series called They Killed Dulcie. If this is your first episode, please note there are three episodes before this one, and it's important to hear those ones first. I also have to warn you that this series deals with violent and sometimes graphic content. In the previous episode, Dulcie and her comrades were caught and sentenced to between five and ten years in jail. In this episode, Betty van der Hayden remembers the years in prison in the 1960s. But we start in the present. This time, not in Europe, but in Cape Town. This episode is the presence of the past. Here is Rasmus Bits. In Roland Street in Cape Town, across the street from a supermarket and a high school basketball court, a building surrounded by thick sandstone walls seem out of place and out of time. It's in the outskirts of what used to be District 6. District 6 was almost entirely demolished in the 1970s to keep the racial groups separate. More than 60,000 people were forcibly removed. 25 years into democracy, the area looks empty and disjointed. Like a life-size monument over the injustices of the past and the inability of the democratic state to restore it. Between the old prison gate and the automatic glass doors, there's a sunny courtyard where people who work here or visit the archive hang out. Everyone in the courtyard is looking for something different, and yet, in some way, it's all the same thing. Felicia, who works here, sums it up perfectly. Before I go, I want to know where I come from, my roots come from. That is my own. What do you know about it now? No, nothing. A few things, but not all that I want to know. Everyone I meet behind the wall seems to agree that the search is worth it. This is Wesi and Nomsa, who works as cleaners in the building. No, we're just curious, man. Because we are humans and we are closer. We know most now we've got, we've got traditions, but we, we want to know where this came from. Uh, it's very important to know where are you coming from, who exactly you are. And our forefathers, we used to, great-great-fathers used to tell stories. And you know, you're not interested because you are a child at that time. So now you'll sit and think that, oh, okay, I would like to know what was happening. So, yeah. Do you regret that you didn't pay more attention to your grandfather? I do. <laughs> I do. I regret it every day because maybe if I listened to him, I would have known that what was happening, who am I, where am I coming from? You see, yeah. In most archives, archivists are protecting the records. Documents are shielded from moisture, from fire and from mold. And sometimes you're asked to wear gloves to handle them. We protect our records because they are where we can go to search for who we are. 
this is the sound of a blast furnace at a steel factory. Sparks are flying over streams of thick yellow liquid metal. The fire consumes everything it touches. In the final years and months of apartheid, paper and microfilm was thrown into the flames of a blast furnace like this one. Knowing that change was coming, the government was trying to get rid of the secrets of the system. In destroying the records, officials tried to rob us of our memory. But it's impossible to remove the past. Questions will keep coming up because we need to understand. And where answers are hidden, conspiracy theories and half-truths thrive. The documents this podcast is based on were found by researchers from Open Secrets. They made it a mission to find out what records still remain from apartheid and to replace myth and conspiracy with evidence. And before it's too late to try to hold the criminals of the past to account. This is Henny van Furen who heads up Open Secrets. We worked through almost 25 archives in seven different countries, um, including the United States, uh, the Stasi archives, the former East German secret police, um, the United Kingdom and Belgium, uh, Switzerland. And in South Africa, you know, we, we worked through both archives of the old National Party, of the African National Congress and the liberation movements, and then many different government archives. And what was amazing was to find um, this massive trove of documents that had not been destroyed at the end of apartheid. While it sounds exciting to be traveling around the world looking for pieces of a dark puzzle in the archives of the CIA and the East German Stasi, the actual work is pretty monotonous. Well, there's no glory in archival work. Um, many archives are dusty spaces um, where you put in requests for material and the archivists bring you just boxes and boxes of, of documents and wish you good luck effectively. Um, and it's your job to sit there and just keep on turning the pages. And for us, we, you know, we wanted to make these all fit together. So you don't necessarily go out and, because it's an ongoing investigation, speak about them. But what wasn't monotonous was the patterns that started to emerge. Sometimes, you know, after a day in the archive, you find some documents which are really quite extraordinary in what they tell us about our world. Um, and those are things that you then kind of have to keep a lid on in your head in a way. Henny and his team began to understand how fortunes were made across the world by countries, businessmen and bankers who made a killing by keeping apartheid armed and alive. They began to think of this as the arms money machine. It was a term they coined to describe what clearly was an elaborate system to move money out of South Africa to pay for weapons that then were moved back in. This was a violation of the UN arms embargo against South Africa, so it had to be done in secret. And of course it didn't happen by itself. Many people were involved. And we'll get to some of them in the next episode. But before that, we need to dwell on someone else. Because amongst the cast of shadowy figures, another character started to emerge. We never found in any of the state archives the Dulcie September file. They were fragments of information. Um, but the more we worked to try to understand how this arms money machine the, worked, the more I think, at least in, in our minds, we started to see this parallel figure, which was Dulcie September, 
who lived at the time, you know, in that world. I mean, she she had informants. We could see in the traces of some documents from trade unions and elsewhere who were directing her potentially to issues around arms shipments. And as this material was revealed to us for the first time, we started to recognize how incredibly dangerous it must have been for somebody in her position. You know, these things even today are pretty way out there, if you like, meaning there are not many people who look into those things and ask the hard questions. And so, you you know, you get a sense of a person, at least, um, who was onto things. But what exactly was she onto? Dulcie's own notes from a box in the ANC archive at Fort Hare, filed under French sale of arms to South Africa, gives us some clues. The notes include reference to nuclear and other weapons collaboration between France and South Africa, and how she tried to instigate formal investigations. Here's an excerpt about a shipment of arms from Bordeaux in France to South Africa. Name of ship, Tina Maru was charged for the purpose. It belonged to a Danish company, Nessa Shipping Company of Svenborg, managed by Jørn Jensen. The latter created a false Panamanian company in 1980 and resold the ship to himself at 15 times the price and gave it the name it used during the transportation of arms. Later, the note continues. Another path is the American company Commerce International, which has an office, rather a mailbox, in Cannes-sur-Mer. The company is in close contact with an Australian financial group, Nugan Hand, whose manager was assassinated two years ago. A third note, handwritten on a notepad from the ANC office in Paris, says the following. Name of the ship on arrival in Durban, Neymar. Flying under Panamanian flag, made five trips. Need to know when they arrived in Durban. From these and similar sources in other archives, it's clear that Dorsey was doggedly investigating the illegal arms trade between France and South Africa. And besides that, Dorsey's notes line up with the findings of Open Secrets. It seems that Dorsey was way ahead of her time in how she understood the secret networks. And yet, there's no conclusive proof. Part of the difficulty in getting this is that some of the archives seems to be more intent on hiding the information from us than helping us find it. This is Henny van Furen again. So we searched as much as we could um, to find documentation that would tell us a little bit more about Dulcie September's life. And many of the documents we had asked for um, included, you know, f- for example, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's documents where the custodian is South Africa's Department of Justice. And it was an incredibly frustrating process. I think the initial response from the archivist was to send us a newspaper clipping that they'd found on the internet about Dulcie September's life. This was after, I think, the f- two years of trying to get a response from them. And so sometimes what you see is just a, a severe... Um, I would almost say it's a culture of impunity when it comes to denying civil society access to information. Bureaucrats who um, have no interest in doing what they are paid to do um, and have just decided that they are going to be the owners of material. They don't have to actually do their job. Dorsey September wasn't murdered in South Africa. She was murdered in France. So maybe we don't need destroyed or hidden documents from South Africa to understand why she was killed. Through emails and phone calls, we've tried to figure out whether there is a file on Dorsey September in one of several archives in France 
where the authorities who investigated her murder are. But aside from a chain of emails to different officials in the Ministry of Justice and Defense, we don't have much to show for. But just because we haven't been successful doesn't mean it isn't possible. We aren't local, we don't know the laws in detail, and we have no connections in the French secret services. But we know somebody who has. My name is uh, Julie Chancel. I'm a... Um I'm a journalist, a freelance journalist. Uh, I'm French. And what else can I say? I'm working. I'm trying to finish a book on uh, the murder of Delcy uh, September. In a small town outside Montpellier in the south of France, journalist Julie Chancel lives with her husband and daughter. The town is an idyllic stereotype of southern France, with narrow streets, old buildings and sunlit squares where old men drink wine in the shade of medieval churches. One of those places you immediately dream of retiring to. But that's not why Judy is here. She works as a journalist by day and researches on her book about Dulce September by night. Being from Paris, she's always known about Dulce. But she only started working on the case a few years ago when something else happened in the neighborhood where Dulce was murdered in Paris. Three Kurdish women activists have been shot dead in Paris in what appears to be a politically motivated execution. Found dead with gunshot wounds to the head in a Kurdish in, um, information center. In 2013, I believe, three Kurdish women activists were shot dead in Paris in the 10th district in a street, two streets parallel of the street where Dulcie September was killed. I remember saying to myself, not again. I mean, not again. Woman, activist, left side, shot in Paris. Protests by members of the Kurdish community are occurring where the shooting took place near the Gardenord train station in central Paris. And of course, those three Kurdish women have nothing to do with Dulcie or with Dulcie's killing or with South Africa. But still, um, that event um, brought Dulcie back to... My forehead. Triggered by another assassination of female political activists in her home city, Julie began to examine the investigations of Dorsey's murder. And she wasn't impressed. Jacqueline de Reims told me she was never interrogated by the police. I mean, she was close to Dulcie. Anyone doing... An, I mean, I'm not I'm a journalist, I'm not a policewoman, I'm not a detective, but uh, it seems to... Or just from watching TV. I mean, when there's a murder, you just speak with all the people uh, around the, the victim. And, uh, and many people were not interrogated. The investigations of Dorsey's death that we know of were all inconclusive. But maybe the secret services in France have information. Unlike us, Julie know where to ask. I was told by a source of the French secret services, a former agent, told me that uh, there was a file about Dulcy in the archives of the um, secret services. I wrote to them and I said, can I have access to it? And they said, uh, they, they replied, I've got uh, the letter, they said, uh, we have no file with this name. I had access to archives from the the foreign affairs, and before I was able to have them, they were submitted to supervision. I think that was the word used. I waited for three hours. And of course, what they gave me was what can be seen, I guess. Julie's interest in Dulcie's case is professional, political, and personal. She cares, as you can hear when she energetically taps on the table when she talks about what bothers her about the case. 
it isn't just the murder or even the fruitless investigations. So basically, it's not that she was killed. It's not just that she was killed. She was erased. And that's also annoying for me. That also makes me angry that she was absolutely erased, that it's very difficult. One, one thing that Dulce's murder illustrates is the difficulty even or furthermore within democracies to have an access to the archives. It's very difficult. Without being able to verify whether there is a French intelligence file on Dulce, we're no closer to finding conclusive evidence of what happened. But the image of Dulce September is getting clearer. Like Craig Williamson, the ex-spy said, she's making a nuisance of herself. I might put it differently. For example, she was becoming a serious threat to the people illegally arming apartheid. And they appear to have taken the threat seriously. In 1985, Dorsey wrote a report entitled Threats to the ANC in France and Strange Incidents. From the archive, we can't say exactly who she wrote it to, but most likely the report was meant for the ANC office in London. In the report, Dorsey details how strange things have started happening to her and around the office. For example, there's been several break-ins to the office without anything being taken. She's also noticed that she has been photographed in the street and in the subway several times. And then she goes on to describe how she believes her phone in her flat is being tapped. The telephone rings around midnight or later. And when I answer, the person replaces the receiver or says it's the wrong number even before it can be ascertained that it is so. On one occasion, I made a call to London. The person whom I was speaking to excused himself because he wanted to fetch something that he wanted to read to me. We were disconnected. And when he returned, we were connected again. On another occasion, I lifted the receiver to make a call and heard voices. I listened in, although I could not hear what was being said. The persons ended their conversation and I went on listening. A telephone rang and a woman answered and said, Thompson and C. I was so shocked that I replaced my receiver. Think about this for a second. Thompson and C was a French arms company. It still exists today, but under a different name. When Dulce lifted her receiver, she had a direct line to a French arms company. It appears like she believed that they might have been tapping her phone. But why? And this is not where the strange coincidences end. Because if you've been following South African politics in the recent years, you might have come across the current name of the same company. Today it's not Thompson & C. It's called Thales. It's the very same company that's accused of having bribed the former South African president, Jacob Zuma, during the 1990s arms deal. We now know that Dalsey believed a phone was being tapped. She felt watched and threatened. We don't know if there's a secret file about her in the French intelligence archives. And if there is, we can't get access to it. It raises an interesting question. Was Dalsy's assassination a French operation? More about this idea in the next episode. Before that, we need to go back to Roland Street in Cape Town. Not to the present-day archive, but to the prison of the past. Because that is where Dulcie and her comrades were locked up after the sentencing. This is Nina Callahan, 
Do you remember the sentencing in the previous episode? How the women on trial had decided they wouldn't give the authorities the pleasure of breaking down? How Dorothy did anyway? And how Dulcie got frustrated? It's the small dramas that we all navigate in our families and communities. Ordinary people with ordinary conflicts. Except there was nothing ordinary about the situation the women were going through. They were sent to prison for plotting a revolution. The four of us were sent to Rowland Street Prison, where the archives are now, and from there to Worcester Prison, from Worcester to Kronstadt, where we met with the other ANC prisoners, and then from Kronstadt via Pretoria to Nostrum, where we spent most of our... Well, they spent most of their time and then from Kurunsa to Barberton. In prison, the drama of everyday life doesn't disappear. It may even get amplified in the heavily regulated environment, being told when to eat, what to eat, when to sleep, to wake, to talk, go outside. It can create a dependency in adults sometimes called infantilization. I never knew how they treat prisoners, you know. The complete disdain, they treat them like children. And the prisoners, the normal criminals, react that way. And so they are children. But the women were not ordinary criminals, and they held on to the spirit of resistance. You know, they expected us to call the male officials boss. It was so shocked when we wouldn't call them boss. <laughs> what would you call them instead? We called them by their title. Major, Lieutenant, Captain, whatever they were. If we didn't know, we'd say Mania. But we wouldn't call them bars. What do they think we're there for? <laughs> we must have been a shock with those fortresses. Inside the prisons, the inmates were denied all news of political nature. But obviously, the world outside did not stand still and remarkable things were happening. Then came the shock news. Dr. Hendrik Perfurt, South African Premier, had been assassinated. At South Africa House in London, people gathered. The man they called the chief architect of apartheid was dead. In September 1966, a man called Dmitri Tsafendas stabbed Prime Minister Hendrik Verwoerd to death. From all over the world, messages of sympathy and regret were sent to the bereaved nation which had lost its leader two days before his 65th birthday. The assassination came as a shock for the Afrikaner establishment, and the political prisoners were not supposed to know. But there are cracks in even the thickest prison walls. Oh, when we heard about Verwood's uh, uh, killing, immediately we let the others know. Verwood <laughs> is dead! No! <laughs> And in no time there was cheering and clapping and dancing and whatever going on. Until the matron came down and said, what's going on here, what's going on? <laughs> and we told her, so Fufuji is dead. You know how we came to hear about it? Because we were denied all news of, of political nature. They gave us these uh, religious pamphlets from time to time. And they had just been handing these out to us as they do normally. Normally we don't even bother to read it. 
And one of these pamphlets that they hadn't paged through, you know, there was an account of the root stabbing. And there was a sort of obituary on him. But there it was. Dmitry Tsafendas, who killed for Vut, would never know how his act became the cause for celebration amongst the political prisoners in Kronstadt prison. He was pronounced insane and locked up until his death in 1999. But Betty van der Heyden doesn't believe it was a mental illness that made Tsafendas attack for Vut. I don't think that man was, was mad. I think it was a calculated move. This isn't just Betty's words. Recently, a new book called The Man Who Killed Apartheid by Harris Dosametsis lays out the case that the killing was a rational political move. But for the government, the assassin had to be derationalized. It was embarrassing that a communist had infiltrated parliament and that a white man would go this far to oppose the system. He had to be insane. I had killed Farood because he was a bad man, had to go. When the prisoners found out that Farood had been murdered, it felt like a small victory. And more so, perhaps, because there were very few victories for the women during the prison years. The conditions were taking their toll, and it was easy to fall victim to feelings of stress, despair and bitterness. But according to Betty, Dulcie was never broken. If I had to choose any one of my friends to be with me during that ordeal, it would have been Dulcie. Dulcie was so calm, so, you know, she never complained that she had done nothing to deserve to be there. I mean, she'd followed all the steps. She wasn't at fault for leaking things. And she didn't complain. She never felt sorry for herself. And you knew that Dalti would not only survive, but probably come out of that stronger. The last time I saw Dalti was when she left prison. When Dalti and Doris and Dorothy left at the same time, for me, it was both Good and bad. It was good that they were going off and that I no longer had to stand between, <laughs> you know, not a, no longer had to worry and keep the peace. And it was sad because I wouldn't be seeing them for at least another five years. When Dulcie and the other women were released, Betty remained inside. She still had five years left of her sentence. When she was released, Dulcie had left for Europe. She never saw her again. You have been listening to episode four of They Killed Dulcie. In episode five, we begin to dismantle what Open Secrets calls the arms money machine. This is also where we get the closest we have ever gotten to a confession of Dulcie's murder. As he looked up at me, um, he said, he said the words, he said, we killed her. 
They Kill Dalsi is made by Open Secrets and Sound Africa. For a full list of who supports our work, go to soundafrica.org and opensecrets.org.za.